0: Welcome to our new episode of Transformative Teaching, a Faceted IU podcast. Today, we have our guest, uh, Nikki Weller, who's a professor of sociology at IU Kokomo and a member of the Facet Class of 2021. And I'm your host, Michael Maroney. Nikki, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good, Michael. How are you?
0: I'm doing a-okay, a-okay. I'm excited that... Uh, we're actually going to have some nice, cooler weather in the next few days, and I'm going to get outside. It is—I uh, know this podcast won't go live until sometime in the fall, but it's the middle of the summer, and you and I are taking our summer day to have a conversation about teaching and learning. And I think that's well, pretty cool. I hope you—I hope you're excited.
1: <laughs> I am. It's—it's it's good to be reminded during the summer that you go back to the job and you need to start thinking about it. So I appreciate the opportunity to. To think about my teaching and reflect upon it but also to I think I was telling you about this step away from the kitchen remodel and yeah. not have to feel <laughs> that I am need to be painting or priming or or doing any type of spackling I can just focus on teaching and enjoy some good conversation
0: well so you're actually maybe learning something about remodeling and construction this summer is that that what I'm hearing
1: you know it is and I'm embarrassed to say that whenever I look at somebody's kitchen or if I am watching a show or reading a magazine where there's kitchens I notice all these tiny little details that I have to worry about where oh that's a really great theme that they were able to (laughs) achieve or not that's a fantastic fit with that sink I wonder how they got that in there and Learning about all the different plumbing that is required and lighting that is required. Information that I don't necessarily need, but I appreciate it. And I appreciate being part of an elite club of people who've done a kitchen (laughs) remodel. Because when you bring it up, people who have gone through this have the same look to them or they sympathize with you and they understand the pain that you're going through.
0: Well, and I'm, I'm thinking about the learning, right? I mean, you're at, okay. How many YouTube videos have you watched this summer?
1: So many, so many YouTube videos, such a learner. And I feel like if I was in a class, I would be raising my hand nonstop. I'd be like Hermione from Harry Potter. My hand would constantly be in the air. (laughs) Like, where are my discussion board groups? Where are my support (laughs) groups? Can somebody come in and give me an A? I need some type of assessment of this.
0: Take a picture of your seam and put it out there and see what kind of comments you get.
1: (laughs) I should. I should. That would, you know, but I I think I'd be nervous to have some professionals come back and say that's not how you're supposed to do it. And you know, it it works well for for us, but yeah, Yeah. it'll look. It's somebody once told me multiple i've heard this phrase multiple times done is better than perfect and there's been times when i had to approach the kitchen remodel with that same mentality done is better than perfect i actually tell my kids that with some of their schoolwork i tell my students that you, done is better than perfect this is this is your learning process finish the job you can always perfect it later if you need especially with undergraduate students this isn't their master's. This isn't their doctorate. This is an undergraduate learning experience. Finish yeah. it, and then we'll make it perfect later.
0: Yeah, there's plenty of, t- plenty of time for for perfecting and refining and getting better. I mean, actually, we do that our whole lives, no matter yes. what we're doing, really. If we yeah. try, if we try. Yeah, that's true. It reminds me of the phrase "Don't let great get way in the get in the way of
1: good." Right? Yeah. Yes, that's a great. That is perfect. I will take that with my kitchen remodel and then i want to use that in my syllabus too i always like to include a little quote in my syllabus for the students and that's a good one i haven't put that in there that's a good one
0: i am gonna borrow I, that. that that's a quote from somebody so
1: i know i'll have to i'll yeah. have to
0: send you the source later
1: yeah i, <laughs> I feel will. like
0: i'll do that i'll do that
1: i, I feel like it can't possibly be muhammad ali was it
0: no no
1: no okay
0: muhammad I mean, ali I mean, was uh float like a butterfly sting like a bee <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. Something. Yeah. He had some other things too.
0: Yeah. He, had, he did. Yeah. He was, he was uh, quite an interesting, quite an interesting uh, thinker and, and and had some nice quotes back in the day.
1: That's um,
0: right. Yeah. So we've been talking about your learning about your kitchen, but I'm kind of curious about moving to, moving to your classrooms uh, and, and your students. Um, and before we started, you were talking about, student learn that makes you happy and, and and how you've got an interesting story about that. And I'd love to hear that.
1: So as a sociologist, we teach a lot of topics that might be uncomfortable for some students to, to talk about. Most high school students don't take a sociology class. Very rarely do I have a student who say they took sociology in high school. So some of the, for some of the students, this is the first time they've ever had a class that might address really in-depth topics like race and ethnicity or class privilege or um, racism or sexism. And at least at Aikokomo, a great majority of our students have to take Introduction to Sociology for Mm. their major. Um, And it's one of my most favorite classes to teach because Mm. I won't see 90% of these students ever again. But I feel like I'm doing such a service to them by having them participate in this class. I always tell them, you know, you're you're taking this class, one, because your advisor told you to, because it's on your degree path. But this is the class that's going to make you a a better citizen, even Mm. if you never take another sociology class. At some point in your life, you will remember what we talked about. There is going to be a moment where you're going to reflect upon this and say, oh, that's right, Dr. Weller brought this up. And it will connect with you. And I don't know what that situation will look like. Maybe it's when you're a nurse and you're with one of your patients and you're trying to understand why they keep coming in with these same symptoms or these same problems. And you realize that it's connected to their um, poverty situation or some other aspect of their life. So I said, I, you know, these these concepts will come back to you. Now, it's my one of my favorite classes to teach, but it's also hard because they're not sociology majors. Most of them aren't. And so I do feel like I spend a little bit of the time convincing that this is worth their time and money, not just because their advisor said that they have to, but that because they're going to become better citizens of the world by participating. Do, in do they class. push back
0: on you? I mean, I assume that at that level, when you start getting to these some of these topics like racism, sexism, you might get some pushback.
1: A little bit, but you know, Michael, they are pretty quiet about it because hmm. these are these are sensitive topics and they don't they're a lot of them are freshmen and so they're just you know brand new out of high school. So they're okay. they're a little they're curious and they have opinions and they want to learn, but they're also nervous. I feel like young people live in this world where they're always afraid somebody's going to record what they said or repeat what they said. So they're they're performing a little bit. And when these topics come up, I have to do a little bit of dog and pony show to get them to talk and to tell them this is a safe space. These are, this is the classroom. This is the environment for you to ask the questions that you might not think are appropriate. And let's talk about it. Let's let's talk about why a comment or a saying or a phrase might be considered um, inappropriate or might be considered um, prejudicial to particular groups. Let's talk about it in this class. This is a safe place to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So one thing that comes up a lot of times is there's multiple examples, but one thing that comes up a lot is talking about privilege and social class mm-hmm. and yeah. how your social class really does give you some extra privilege. And there's a lot of nervousness about recognizing that and how to recognize that without then saying or like the fear of admitting, well, yes, my social class is giving me privilege, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. And so... Right. I have to be very careful, I feel like, in this environment so that I don't lose a student who wants to hear more and talk about it and I mean, this is super
0: politicized, right? I mean, that's... It is.
1: It is. And, you know, but I feel like the students really want to talk about it and Mm -hmm. they want to be guided through these discussions. And so one aha moment that I usually get throughout the semester is when we talk about privilege and we talk about your class status, I'll do these examples where... I'll ask students that confidentially they're not sharing this unless they want to I'll say let's go to this website where you plug in your zip code and it shows how close and how many uh, how many grocery stores you have access to Mm -hmm. and how close they are and how many parks you have access to and how far away are you from a freeway how many hospitals or healthcare clinics do you have access to how many schools or what did your school look like and we'll, we'll even plug in the high schools that they went to and you can see all these different rankings that talk about the services that are provided, the classes that are provided and then I say to the students now if if you lived anywhere else let's pick a different zip code mm-hmm. and compare and contrast that what wouldn't you have access to? What would be different? What would have been different about your high school education? As you came into college, and as it prepares you to. That's a cool activity. Do you,
0: so, do you do this as part of your class? You have them do this comparison. I do,
1: I do. So yeah. we we do it when it comes to social class, and then the education part. Well, with Introduction to Sociology, it's a tough class to teach because we're basically teaching the whole discipline in oh, sixteen yeah. weeks. So we get like one topic each week, and I always tell students, "You're not supposed to know everything about this. This class is for me to try to recruit you." to become junior sociologists so that you want to continue studying this. So let's, you know, if you hear something that excites you, if you're like, wow, this, this topic of education, is something I really want to pursue. I, I don't want to be a teacher, but I want to work for the Department of Education. Maybe this is something that I should pursue further. So we do a lot of time talking about education and how education is this great equalizer and it um, it really sets people up for success. And then we talk about, we do this whole activity about what kind of careers do you want to go to and what kind of education do you need to pursue that and how education gives you autonomy and it gives you some control of your life. And students start to realize that they know they're in college because somebody told them to go to college or that's what you're supposed to do. But I try to make it very personal so that they realize this; these have individual effects on me and on my future family, whatever that might look like. And... Usually I see that student who might not have been participating, engaged when we're doing these activities and I'm watching them on their computers, plugging in up and you see their faces respond like, oh, this was this is what I have. This is why I am here, this is why I had these opportunities to participate in these clubs or these sports, or you know, this is why my high school had extracurricular activities or AP classes and something that doesn't exist elsewhere because of the zip code that I lived in and that is usually pretty powerful and I I love seeing it cuz I don't have to I don't have to like hammer that home with the students mm-hmm. I don't have to sit and convince them they see it themselves and and you can see I it on like, their faces Hey you can see it on their faces and then <laughs> so I like then when they start looking and then I mean then it goes off the rails cuz then they'll start mm-hmm. looking up zip codes like Beverly Hills and oh, then that sure. no and then they'll you know they'll start and they'll look for the like zip codes that they know are low income or high poverty or high crime. And then they like to compare, but then they realize the importance of your social environment on Mm -hmm. these future outcomes, these future um, career opportunities and family opportunities and social networking. And I mean, I could teach them that it's in the textbook and I could lecture it to them. So until they start to plug that in and see it themselves. And I even, you know, I say, look, the grocery stores, you know, you don't think about that when you're young, perhaps. I mean, there's always students who are very painfully aware of where the grocery stores are and how long it takes them to get there. But some students don't realize that access to grocery stores means access to food, access to different types of food, healthy food, affordable food. And then that gives them an advantage. You know, I always use the example, how many of you have ever had to take a test when you were hungry? And how well did that go? And if this is your whole life, if you're constantly having to go to school when you're hungry, you're not going to do as well as your counterparts who have had access to whatever they want, whenever they want it.
0: Yeah, that, really, that reminds me of that that, that band, book, Bandwidth Recovery, where we talk about students only have mm-hmm. so much kind of cognitive bandwidth to, to attend to their lives. And
1: mm-hmm. if
0: you're hungry, you're paying attention
1: to that, right? Right, Exactly, yeah. and I mean even you know. one, I'm glad that you brought that up because one comment that comes up with students too is then, Well, there's free and reduced lunches. You know, these kids because there's always somebody who wants to keep pushing back against some of these ideas. And mm-hmm. well, there's free and reduced lunches. These kids have access to lunch, and then we that lets me start talking about stigma and what happens when yeah. you are faced with the stigma of having free and reduced lunch and You know, I always ask students, um, you know, have you ever had to, you know, a situation where you didn't have something or you needed something and you felt like everybody knew you had this problem, you felt very isolated, you felt very excluded, and how that's the only thing that you can think about. And that's the only thing that you're worrying about. You're not worrying about your SAT as a junior and how that's going to help you get scholarships. You're worrying about the stigma. I always joke with my students, I'm like, you know, I know you're all college freshmen and you're years beyond the high school trauma. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to remember that you're, when you're in high school, your peer network is so important to you. And what people think of you, is so it's so crucial, which is also a sociological concept that we spend a lot of time talking about, like these performances that we do. So people will accept us one way or another. We're trying to control the way people perceive us. And I said, if you are worrying about the stigma that's attached to your free or reduced lunch, you're not going to be worrying about um, how you're going to do on your test or perhaps even trying out for this club or this other activity that would keep you networked and engaged in your high school environment instead of this fear about, well, I'm hungry or people are going to know that I have this, this free and reduced whatever it might be or that I'm going to see the counselor because I have mental health issues, and so we talk about that, and when I use these examples, students can apply in high school, then they really get it, then they can relate, Mm -hmm. usually students will start, I I mean, I let it happen, but it can turn into just this very large group therapy session where they love to share (laughs) their stories, and you know, and that's part of this rapport building that mm-hmm. I try to do because I, I want the students to feel safe in my classroom because we're talking about tough topics. We're talking about things that you know they feel might not be appropriate to talk about, and the more they share, then they hear these different opinions, and hopefully they come out as a better citizen, a little bit more sympathetic to the people around them. That you know, they. I mean, we we really need
0: that, don't we? We need that. I think so, budget. big time, yeah. big time. I mean, the uh, this this notion of kind of building the rapport um, based on kind of where they're coming from, so their previous experiences, and then you're kind of exposing them to kind of new possible experiences, and the the rapport building happens around that. And um, I know that you're really committed to this idea of experiential um, e- education. And uh, so what does this look like kind of in, in like a project in your class? Because uh, you talked about like this is like an, a little activity, right? It's a cool mm-hmm. activity. But what, at the project level, I, I'm assuming that you have projects. What kinds of, yeah. what kinds of things do you have them doing?
1: Um, I have lots of projects. I I think experiential learning is the core of my teaching, so much so that sometimes I have to remind myself that I, I do actually need to lecture on a few topics, that yeah. you can't learn everything through experiential learning. Years ago, I participated in a Reacting to a Past workshop. Have you heard mm-hmm. of that before? Yep.
0: Yeah, I have. Um,
1: and I... Absolutely loved it. And can I could you
0: explain to- it for a second though? Because maybe not everybody's heard it who's listening. So yeah.
1: yeah, Reacting to the Past is an experiential learning activity that was born out of Barnard College, I believe. And it's the idea that you have students role play, typically historical events, and each student is assigned a character and they each have their own objective, and they have to research their character. Usually, if they're not a historical figure, uh, an accurate historical figure, there's somebody that would have been there. So you might not have George Washington, but you would have people who were living at that time. Mm. And so there's a larger class objective. Everybody has roles. They do some history. They do some research. And then you play the game, and they're trying to win the game. And so they're going through. There's a solution that they always have to solve, and they're going through it. So years ago, I collaborated with two other professors um, who were teaching general education classes, and we did a Reacting to the Past for the Black Plague, Mm. Um, and this is before COVID. And we were talking about how your social class influenced your ability to survive the Black Plague and what happened based on where you were in society at that time, who survived and who didn't and what that looked like. And I loved it and it was great, but it was pretty dense for an intro to sociology course of course. Mm. So I kind of tweaked it and I came up with different um, react in the past style games where the students then I put them into groups and we did this like wheel of fortune um, chance, life chance approach. And mm. their groups were assigned a certain social class and they were assigned a certain income that they had every month. And they had to reach all these objectives. They had to find affordable housing. They had to um, figure out childcare. They had to come up with ways to stay healthy. Um, and then they had this income. And then throughout the project, I would throw wrinkles into it. So I would say, you know, your water heater just exploded. And so now you have to figure that out. You can't ignore it. Or um, one of the, everybody had a, they were in a family of, uh, with two children. One of the children had an asthma attack and had to go to the emergency room and you had to pay for the extra inhaler and that child can't go back to school. So you have to stay home. And so we would be going through this with these different life chances and the students had to figure out how they were gonna make it to the end of the month based on it. And like my previous example, they used real life Indiana data. Mm. So they had to look for Apartments or houses for rent, and they had to figure out how they were going to get to grocery stores if they didn't have a car and um the child care that they could afford, the school districts that they would live in and then what would happen if you had this medical emergency, how are you going to be able to afford it and It was at least a month long project, and the students were so engaged in it they they had fun with it, so they got to create what their family looked like and students are wildly creative when it comes to creating family <laughs> avatars. Yeah. Every semester, I'm always surprised uh, when they come back. But it was what the students always reflected upon was how hard it is mm-hmm. to achieve some of just the basic living standards when an emergency happens. Yeah. And then those families that were considered lower income. They felt just like they could never catch their breath. Mm-hmm. They were always stressed. And they even talked about it. They said as students, they were always worried about, well, what mm-hmm. is going to happen in Dr. Weller's next class? What is she going to do to our family now? Because we can't afford <laughs> it's that, it's that, so what she going to
0: do to our family yeah. now.
1: Right. You know, and, oh, wow. and, but they realized they're like, this is, this wasn't, um, you know, we weren't having the houses struck with lightning or anything. These are real case studies that mm-hmm. they were experiencing. And when that was done and the students reflected upon it, you know, the lower income classes, they thought it just, I didn't even have time to be jealous of the groups that had higher income. I I was just trying to survive. I just could not, yeah. we were just trying to pay the bills. And then the students who were considered middle-class, they said, you know, they were so aware of what the upper-class groups had and they were how close they were to lower-class. And then, you know, the upper-class groups, you know, they said, we we were watching, the lower class groups thinking you need to save your money or you need to do this And then when they when they did their presentation and you heard their stress they were very empathetic to the situation and it was a great opportunity for the students to experience all these different levels of income mm-hmm. and class status and how it impacts so much of your life and how when you have an emergency like the water heater or medical emergency it's essentially catastrophic And the, the, you know, what I tell them was that it's not about making poor choices. It's not about wasting your money on ridiculous scooters. It's about just trying to survive and provide for your, uh, your family and for yourself. And I love, I, that's one of my favorite experiences. It's it's a really
0: cool, uh, really cool project. And so you've got different, these different uh, levels, income levels um, Mm -hmm. and kind of, geographic privileged, privileged areas and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have, I am assuming there's a lot of individual student reflection built into this and then then maybe group reflection and then the presentation and um, how long, so there's a lot going on when you're doing this project. How how long, how long does it take? Is it kind of spread out over a whole semester or.
1: Well, I usually use it halfway through the semester because I, I need to see the student who the students are I want to put them in groups based on people who are going to help one another I try to you know I feel that out but then they also have to have a base understanding of, of these sociological concepts and how class status in this particular example is very important
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so they start meeting halfway through the semester and then they just keep building on it so we start pretty easy where we put them they get put in these families of four and then we do our wheel of fortune and then they figure out their income and then they figure out how they're going to pay their bills. And that's usually where they, that is usually where the rose colored glasses come off yeah. because they, you know, they'll say, well, we're not going to have a cell phone. We That's the $300 bill. We don't need it. And then the yeah. students will say, how are you going to like talk to your kid's school or your right. employer? And so that's where they start to really see some of these larger picture items. So when people say you shouldn't have a fancy phone and how am I supposed to like, talk to my boss or talk to my right. kids teachers and so right. we start small and then it just escalates and you and know ha- are they seeing is...
0: each other's groups kind of going through their they are. their they okay are. okay so there's like so, report outs it, along the way and... it is like,
1: I think. well and so we throughout the class um all groups are subject to this wheel of fortune mm-hmm. where they have these different you know events that occur but the more money you have, then you can buy your way out of some of the catastrophes. And so (laughs) if you spin the wheel and it's like you get into a car accident, well, no problem because you have car insurance. And so you have a rental and you're fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they start to see where these privileges come in. It's not just about luck and it's not just about um the fact that you have more money is that you have these resources available to you because you've been able to make those choices um you know and then I'll throw in things like um you had a car accident but your coworker has an extra car so they're going to let you use it for free until you get a, a new one and you know that the some of the students will be like well nobody at working at McDonald's has an extra car that they can give and so they see how um all of these all of these sociological concepts that we're learning about they build this toolkit of resources. So yeah. they like it. I think you know it gets creative and they uh they have fun with it. And I, I really feel like they can identify with some of it. And before COVID, we I used to do this project, and then the Department of Sociology, we would do a hunger banquet. Have you heard of this before? No, no. Um, where we would bring all of the intro to sociology classes together and When students walked in, they would be randomly assigned a social class and they'd get a ticket. And that ticket determined what type of meal they would get and where they Mm. got to sit during the meal. And so if you were a higher social class, you got to sit at a table and you had plates and you had silverware and you had this whole like pasta dinner. The lowest social classes had to sit on the floor and they had some water and some bread. And during the lunch, we had folks from the Department of Public Health come and talk to us about food insecurities. Mm-hmm. So they're eating this, but then they're also experiencing it as well. We haven't done that since COVID, but that was always a good tie into this type of project too.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. So mm-hmm. you're bringing up these kinds of concepts um, for your first year students that are 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 new new they're very eye-opening i mean that's probably there's there's a little bit of darkness that like oh gosh i didn't know that the world was so hard for some people i mean that's hard that's hard to struggle with um for for some folks and um what what i'm wondering is is thinking about our students and thinking about them in the middle of the semester when they're confronted with kind of all this new um, not only affective kinds of learning but also just the, the factual kinds of learning that are going on here are there anything anything that like keeps you up in the middle of the night anything that worries you
1: oh yeah i i think i mean if you're teaching anything you always worry about if you're harming your students by teaching them something and one thing and i've learned over the years how to respond. I've I've been teaching long enough where I know what are going to be hot topic issues and I know what are going to be difficult conversations. And so I try to have something planned, a backup plan where if I feel like the conversations are getting a little too heated, Mm -hmm. if opinions are getting a little too strong, where I will ask the students to take three minutes and to just write like a quick reflection on paper about it. Um, and then if they want to share it, I'll let a few students share it. Most of them calm down once they've had a chance to write it down. And I collect those and then I will I'll organize them. And then in the next class period, we'll talk about them because I don't want students to feel like they are being preached to about some of the social issues. I just want them to be good citizens where they recognize it and whether they agree with what they're seeing or whether they go into a field where they can change it. I feel like it's important that they recognize some of these injustices exist, but that there are solutions, and there are people who are working to minimize some of these injustices and trying to make it a better place for everybody. Um, one thing that is always difficult is the discussion about equality and equity and how mm-hmm. students deal with what is equal and what is what is equitable and um, you know trying to change some of that perception about what is equitable and what is equal and that's hard to do that is a difficult that's a line that you have to kind of toe when you're talking to young people so that you know they don't feel like they're being preached to about something and they're hearing some of the theories behind it and there's a lot of great sociologists that have studied this and trying to tell them that this isn't just crazy Dr. Weather speak that there's actual theories and there's methodology and it's not just Information that people are pulling out, people have observed this, and there's there are consequences, both good and bad, for some of these um, topics that we 're talking about
0: yeah and so so one of the one of the uh, approaches is is kind of this like cooling off sort of reflection and mm-hmm. circling back to it and kind of having i guess a constructive conversation around it because i think that I think that a lot of people do. Um, Want to kind of put their head in the sand when they when they see what's happening in the world, and they they don't like. We hear that people want to push back. They don't believe in systemic racism. They don't believe in systemic injustice, mm-hmm. right? And people need mm-hmm. to just you know uh you know put, they need just need to put their they, they just need to toughen up that kind of a thing, and and, and mm-hmm. to, to realize that that's not really the case
1: <laughs> a no. lot of times. A lot of people don't like that. <laughs> Right. Well, I try, I I always look at my class roster to see where the students are coming from with the intro to social, if they're not social majors. So I know what their major is, I have an idea and I always try to use examples that I know would apply to their future career. So with the nursing, I try to, for the nursing students, you know, I say, you need to be aware of some of these social environments that your patients are gonna be living in. If you spend time with them talking about their prescriptions and how they're supposed to use it, they might not be paying attention or they might not follow through, not because they don't care, but because they don't have the time to do three doses of this particular antibiotic. Um, or there might be a cultural miscommunication. If three doses in a day makes me healthy, then why not thirty doses in one day and be done with it? And wow, you know how do you and that? I mean that that comes up. So you know, I say this is why, and it's intro to social. So I I recognize that this is sixteen weeks of the life. But if they remember even a little bit of that, that oh that's right. Maybe just because it makes sense to me, that doesn't mean it's going to make sense to everybody else. Or just yeah. because this is how I was raised, that's not how other people were raised. And there's that right or wrong way. I just have to understand it so that I can help my patient or that I can, you know, help the Department of Education with these particular students or, you know, whatever it might be.
0: Yeah. Well, I, so so there, there, there's a lot going on in, in in running these kinds of activities and experiential learning, and I'm sure that sure that through the years, um, your ability to manage all the different nuances of what's happening uh, when you're doing this has, has, has that, that you've like, you've really grown in your ability to 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 handle all the different things that can come up, and because um, I I think we all. Grow a lot when we're when we're teaching. We learn a lot when we're teaching. I'm wondering what what advice you would give to a new faculty member so that they could mm-hmm. make sure that they're growing as much as possible, so that they can benefit our students and help our students be uh, the best citizens and contributors they can be.
1: You know, all of my examples; these were all risks that I took, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't work. And you, I think, with instructors, you don't new instructors, you don't feel like you have a lot of time. I never did. I always felt like I was maybe two days ahead of my students. And mm-hmm. if I was, I felt like that was a success. And so the idea of incorporating a semester-long project that you've never done before is terrifying, because what if it's a total and complete failure, and that's 20% of your student grade or something of that nature. So one thing that I think new instructors, what I always tell new instructors is you have to try it. You got to take the risk. If it doesn't work, you'll learn from it and you'll, you'll tweak it and make it better the next time. If it's a total failure, you don't have to do it again. You you know, you are in control of the classroom and the students, I feel like they really like, at least my students, they like that active engagement. They want to be doing stuff. The students complained about reacting to the past at first because it wasn't just show up in class and you lecture to me, but after a while they loved it. And I could see There was a palpable difference in the student camaraderie as Mm -hmm. we progressed through. These kids who probably, kids, students who probably would not have hung out before became buddies. And that has a success rate because then they're committed and they want to stay in school. So one thing that I would tell new instructors is take the risk and just be eyes wide open. Take notes. I love that. Figure out what's working. If it doesn't work, it's not that you have to give it up. And if it if it doesn't work, if you tried something, you know, you nobody's going to ding you on your evaluation or on your annual review. If you can justify, if you can explain, I tried this, it was okay or didn't work, but I tried it. And here's why I tried it. I mean, that's what teaching is. I think the worst thing is when teachers just get stuck because it's simple or it's easy or... It's familiar. You know, you have to be uncomfortable and, and, and try new things. And I know that's easy to say years out when I have a lot of my curriculum down, but I'm teaching two new classes this fall and I've got big plans. And I already know that I can see, <laughs> you know, I can see some of the holes and some Here's of the potential where this could
0: go awry. <laughs> yes.
1: But you know what? You just got to get in there. You got to go yeah. head first. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, I know like I tell my students I'm I'm flexible this is it is not my job for you to fail I don't get paid more if you do poorly in this class and if you need something then talk to me we're in this together this is a learning process and if it works then I feel like I've done something for you and if you hate it then tell me because the next class will appreciate your honesty um,
0: yeah, I, so I, I really appreciate it when the students will, during the semester, say, okay, I'm not seeing why I need to do this. And, 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 right. and then you can have a conversation around it. And, right. and if, in fact, it's not working, you can say, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're going to do, right. let's talk about what we're going to do. Uh, and I think right. that that's great. And this, this notion of continuous improvement is, I mean, we need to model that for our students. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so this idea that you, you take risks and you grow from it is just, yes, I, I think that uh, that's wonderful advice for, for our um, new faculty. And Nikki, I wanna thank you for joining us today. This was a great conversation. I enjoyed so much hearing about um, all this experiential learning that you're doing. And um, I wanna keep the conversation going afterwards. So um, bye everybody else.
1: Hi, thank you so much. I loved
0: it. (laughs)